All right. Uh, Andrew's going to read the reading for us this morning as we get into our second week of this series. Numbers 27 from verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eliezer the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eliezer the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eliezer the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, as the Lord instructed through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Alrighty, make that 702 uh, technical difficulties for this morning. <laughs> so Andrew just read from uh, the... Towards the end of the book of Numbers, if we just put that second, probably second slide up on the screen, Doug, um, uh, we'll see this is the passage where Moses did as the Lord commanded him and handed over the leadership to Joshua, commissioned him as the Lord instructed Moses. So, uh, last week we began a new series uh, called Fear or Faith, and uh, begin where the Bible first mentions Joshua where we first meet him um, in, in uh, bits and pieces through the book of Exodus. And uh, we talked last week about how Joshua first, he, he learned to focus not on what others were doing, whether it was focusing God, on godly people or focusing on ungodly people, um, but he learned to give his attention to God. And we finished uh, in Exodus 33, right after this kind of epic fail of the golden calf, where the Israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain and build this golden calf to worship. Um, but to get to today's reading, which is right through to Numbers 27, where uh, the reins are handed over from Moses to Joshua, um, and then the book of Joshua comes slightly after that, uh, to get there, we're going to need to go through a little journey through the scriptures again. So you're up for that. We covered 20 chapters last week. There's about 50 chapters this week. Um, uh, but we will be skimming through quite a bit of it. Um, so today's message is titled, Faith in Yahweh. Who is this, this God that Joshua learned to trust? What's he like? What's his nature? Who did he reveal himself to be? Uh, so let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the scriptures this morning. Thank you for the word of God, that it's so readily accessible to us, and that as we open it this morning, uh, you speak to us by your spirit in a unique and timely way. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and you open my heart, Lord, to be receptive to the Spirit of God. Come, Holy Spirit, change and transform us and reveal the Father to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Exodus 33 is where we finished last week, the BCF tent of meeting where we left off. Um, bad joke. Moses said, God, we need your presence. And even... Pray, show me your glory. Bold prayer. God says, look, 
that's going to be too much for you, but I'll pass by you and cover your face while I do, because that's all you'll be able to handle. Um, and then in the next chapter, when this happens, um, we read this, this passage, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God, in essence, reveals himself. And it's, it's such a significant passage of Scripture, if not the most significant in the Old Testament, because it's basically God saying, for the very first time, this is who I am. This is who I am. It's the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. It's, it comes up over and over again. Prophets and kings, they quote this, uh, these verses. And there's a great book by uh, John Mark Comer on this called God Has a Name, Yahweh. Kind of meet, it essentially, it's like that I am name. He is, I am, who I am. Basically, if you've, never, if you've ever read the Old Testament and, and just really struggle when you're reading through it with all the stuff that happens, it's like, look, it just seems like God just gets angry for no reason or he's too, he's too harsh and people are dying. If, you, if that's been your experience, this passage really helps us understand what's going on, what, what God is actually like as the prophets and kings keep coming back to this, even if at other times it seems like it's deviating. So let's have a read of this from verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now, normally when you read that, it's in like little capital letters. That means God's name, the four Hebrew consonants, uh, yod Hey vav Hey, which the best we can pronounce it is Yahweh. Like that's just trying to add in some vowels and make the most of what we, what we have, but it's four, it's four Hebrew letters that we would say Yahweh. So I've just replaced in here or put next to the Lord in each point, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, I'm going to unpack this a little bit, not, not a huge amount, but just two things to notice. God is slow to anger. Yes, God gets angry at sin. Yes, God is a, a God who has wrath towards sin, the stuff that's messed up this world, but he's slow to anger. We saw this last week with the Israelites like time and time. Again, grumbling, grumbling, and God's patient and patient and patient. Eventually, God's like, look, enough is enough, and he's, he gets angry and he reacts. But he's slow to anger. And this, then this last line, notice this. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents. Now, it sounds harsh. It sounds like, whoa, hang on a second. Like, is that really the same God Jesus came to reveal? A couple of things, though. Firstly, this is about God being not just forgiving, but just. Some people don't want forgiveness. Some people, are, um, uh, they want their way, and sometimes that hurts others. That, that hurts the world, this sin, this evil, it, it, it hurts what God has said is good. And God can't and won't turn a blind eye to that which hurts what he loves, including you and I. He won't turn a blind eye to that. He needs to deal with it, uh, and he wants to deal with it. And it's, um, but what about this punishing the kids for their parents' sin? Well, it's not quite what it reads in the English. It's about the fact that sin runs in the family from generation to generation, and God wants sin gone. 
So it doesn't keep passing from generation to generation. But also, notice the, the last few words. These final few words are an astounding message of grace if you understand what's going on. Just earlier, where it says maintaining love to thousands, there's a word after that in the Hebrew that could be translated generations, and then it's the same one that you see at the end, generations. So the punishment of sin might go on for three or four, quote, generations. But how many generations does he maintain thousands, uh, maintain love to? Thousands. So in the Hebrew, there's this, this unfamiliar word, but basically it's a picture. Love and mercy and grace, thousands, punishment and judgment, three, four. Do you see how it's like scales way out of balance? He's a God overwhelmingly of mercy and forgiveness and love, but he does want to deal with sin. It's just that it's way out of balance. God is overwhelmingly merciful. And that's the story of the Old Testament and, for that matter, the New Testament, despite the fact that some people would want to try and reverse the scales and emphasize that. So keep this in mind as we move forward. Um, because, spoiler alert, it's going to come up again. Uh, so, some incredible stuff happens in the following chapters, following Exodus 34. I'm going to skip over a lot for the sake of time, but you've got stuff like Moses' face glows when he meets with God, and they have to put a veil over his face. I'm thinking maybe we'll put some veils outside the prayer room, and then when the prayer team come out, they can, you know, yeah, who knows. Um, we might need it. Uh, God says, um, I'll perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere. Uh, Moses gets the Ten Commandments on new tablets, stone, not Apple or Android. And then Exodus 35, bad joke again. Bezalel, uh, filled with the Spirit to be able to have wisdom and knowledge for the building of the tabernacle. Then you've got this long stretch, Exodus 36, Numbers 9, the whole of Leviticus is in the middle of that where the tabernacle is built and they learn how that's going to work and there's the cloud that comes down in front of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and, and um, guides them, the, like the presence of God physically, tangibly. Um, all these rules and all these guidelines on how to live, uh, it's, it stretches for quite a long time. And it seems like there's some really positive change in the camp, right? The Israelites are giving generously, like they give more than what's needed to build the tabernacle, and it's pretty um, complex and pretty uh, substantial what, what, what was required. They seem to be honoring God and getting along. That We read multiple times they really respect Moses, their leader, that many times it says they did everything Moses said. When does that ever happen with a leader, right? So, so things seem to have shifted, and then the time comes, Numbers 10, for them to move. Because the cloud begins to move, so they have to pick the tabernacle up and move with the cloud. Now, you remember what happened last week after Exodus, after the Red Sea, right? They're trekking for three days, and they start whinging, right? Three days in, it's like, sun's hot, we got no food, ah, God, we want to go back to Egypt. But they're different people now, right? Right, they, they've, all this stuff has happened, and God has been with them in some incredible ways. There were the Ten Commandments. There's literally guidelines on worship and how to do family and community and all sorts of things that they have. They're not just a bunch of tired slaves anymore. God is with them in an extraordinary way. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord, and they traveled for three days, similar to going back to two books in Exodus. The Ark of the Covenant, the Lord went before them this time, though. During those three days to find a place of rest, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. God is with them amazingly. 
So three days into this journey, what do you think they do this time? The same thing. <laughs> now the people complained about their hardships, <laughs> hearing of the Lord. You'd love to read. And their hearts were changed and it was different this time, but unfortunately not. And when God heard this, heard them, his anger was aroused. And of course, yes, God is compassionate. God is uh, patient. Uh, he's patient. He's, he's merciful and forgiving. He's slow to anger. But this time he spent months and months, if not years, setting them up thoroughly with everything that they need for this journey. And still, my son is hot, God. You know, it's like, oh. Now, it's easy to criticize. Look and go, oh, my goodness, they're hopeless. But do we recognize this in ourselves, that when we have everything we need, and even more than what we need, instead of thanking God and trusting him when things get a little bit tough, we just feel entitled. We whinge, and we, we, we lack faith in God. What if being in a state of abundance, having more than what we need, is God's provision so that in the times that are challenging, when we are required to step into to, to faith-stretching territory, and th that we wouldn't crumble, that we would have everything we need, we can keep going. Two and a half years ago, um, David De Reverend David DeCock, he was the General Secretary of the United Church at the time, he preached here for us, and uh, uh, he shared with us how one of the committees in the Uniting Church had removed our $2.5 million debt. Like they'd reorganized that land there and said, you're now debt free. It's gone. And David, he, he, he spoke here and he challenged us. He said this, this on the screen. Those who forgave your debt are trusting that you, the people of this congregation, will take that gift and use your new debtless freedom to multiply for the kingdom of God, just as each Christian, freed from the burden of sin, can go out and make disciples. What a powerful challenge. I remember when he said it, I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> what, a, what a great challenge. We're indeed incredibly blessed as a congregation financially, materially. Um, so when God leads us out, maybe to venture into new geographic territory, we've got a couple of choices. We can complain about the, the challenges of that, or we can recognize that everything God has given us is for kingdom advancement and be faithful to what he's asking. Numbers 11, uh, the next bit where we'll, we'll move to, um, what happens with the Israelites next is, is sad, but kind of funny at the same time, if I'm honest. Um, it's the same complaints as before. We had meat to eat in Egypt, and now we just have these wafer things falling from the sky, right? There's whinging. And God says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, okay, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he sends quail. Now, they'd had quail before, but this time it's quail up to their kneecaps everywhere for 10 days. Like, God says, I'm going to give you quail, I'm going to give you meat until you're gagging on it and it's coming out your nostrils. That's the Hebrew. That's not paraphrasing, right? It's like, which to me is just kind of funny. <laughs> you know, it's like, you want meat, I'll give you meat. But I wonder if there's also a lesson here for us. You know, what do we want from God, if we're really honest? But in reality, we have so much of it that we're actually now just drowning in it and gagging on it. 
we have so much money, so, many, so much in terms of resource building, the, all the freedom to do what we want, all of, the gen, all of the blessings of living in Australia, right? Some of these things become more of a burden than a blessing because God's poured out so much that it's actually not bringing joy anymore. I mean, for me, this is why I unapologetically advocate for tithing, giving your first 10% of income or more if tithing is really comfortable for you. Because then the abundance we have actually becomes a blessing. Because Jesus is more blessed to give than receive. To keep receiving is not a blessing anymore. It's too much. So the other thing that happened in this chapter, um, apart from the quail infestation, is that Moses said, I'm done. Now, last week, we read about how God said, I'm done. That's enough. We're, we're, we're done with these people. Moses gets there this time. And Moses is like, I can't deal with them anymore. I've never asked to be their parent as they whinge like little kids, is basically what he says. So God says, okay, go get 70 leaders, right? So imagine the Israelites, there's thousands of them now. Go get 70 respected leaders in the Israelite camps. Bring them to the tent of meeting, tabernacle, and I'll empower them to sh- and so that they share the burden of responsibility with you. Right? Sounds, sounds wise. Uh, sounds like a good thing. It's going to be a, a, should be a shift now. So it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit wasn't inactive until Pentecost. We're in the lead-up to Pentecost, right, uh, 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit wasn't, like, absent before that. It just was different. I mean, the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. It's now not, like, just temporarily and then, you know, kind of like this, but did not do so again. It is poured out for us, available to us. Um, but the Spirit's here. He's at work in Moses. Now in these 70 elders one of whom may have been Joshua. We at least know Joshua was there. Because this happens. Two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had um, remained in the camp. So they weren't there with the 70, but they were elders. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said... Moses, my Lord, stop them. Stop them prophesying. Now, why did Joshua not like this happening? We don't fully know. Maybe he was thinking like, they weren't in the 70. They shouldn't have received it, right? Maybe he he thought, well, look, if, if the power Moses had spreads to any old person in the camp, it could get chaotic. How are we going to manage this? Whatever the case, Joshua has clearly made a mistake here. He hasn't done what he did in Exodus 33 last week. He hasn't focused on what God is doing and what God is up to. He's focused on what other people are doing. And last week we saw him. He, he's, he's in the tent. Uh, and it's sad that this shift has happened because we saw this guy being so transformed by what God was doing and what God would do, that he, he just was like, I don't want to worry about Moses or the other people. I just want to be in God's presence. I just want my attention to be there. But this move of the Spirit is new, right? It's unfamiliar, and he gets distracted. 
And don't we tend to do this all the time? You know, so long as God's working in ways that we can appreciate we, we un- and that we understand, we kind of look at it and go, wow, that's awesome. God's at work. And we fix our eyes on God in that. And we say, thank you, God. That's great. But as soon as God moves in ways that we're not really sure are good and from God, we can look at it and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Are we sure this is God? I want to really, I want to encourage you today. If you observe something that may or may not be God, something that's a bit out of your comfort zone, something that other Christians are into or that the church does or another church does or the leaders say, hey, I think we should go here. I want to, I want to encourage you with one thing this morning. Take it to God. Take it to God and say, God, is this you? Holy Spirit, is, is this your work? Ask him. I, I'm just so amazed at how when I pray like this, when I ask God, is this you? Stuff I thought was God all over it. Turns out just to be hype. And something over here that I thought was a bit weird <laughs> turns out is God's most fruitful and amazing work. If you just ask God, God, what are you actually doing? It's not always what our natural eyes see. Go to him. The spirit of God is, is like a wind. You can't control him. You can't predict him. So go to him. Holy Spirit, is this you? Take it to God. Don't get distracted by what others are doing. Ask God. Moses responds to Joshua when he says, Mama, stop them. Moses responds to Joshua and says, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You know, what an amazing opportunity for Joshua to learn. You know, he slips up, he starts worrying about others, he gets distracted. But his mentor, his leader says, Hey, get your eye back on God. This isn't, this isn't you. You know, I would rather do something, say something, challenge something, try something that I might get wrong than sit back and watch and miss an opportunity to learn and grow. That's what Joshua did. He got it wrong, sure. But he was challenged, corrected, and he kept moving forward. And that's so important because now we see a shift again in Joshua in a positive sense. Let's see what happens next. A couple of chapters later, Numbers 13. How are we doing so far? Look, the screen's almost full. We're almost there. All right? There's not a second screen. Numbers 13, okay? Scouting the land. You might know the story. God says to Moses, send a leader from each of the 12 tribes. So the 12 spies go and check out the soil. Check out the people there. Check out whether it's barricaded. Check out the, the, how good the fruit is, all that kind of thing. They come back. And they're like, oh, my goodness, the grapes are amazing. Turns out it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Yep, that's what God said, but now you've worked it out for yourself. And so they come back, and it's like, it is amazing land, but there's big, scary baddies there, right, with big, fortified cities. We, we can't do this. Caleb spoke up. He was one of the 12, and he said, no, 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 we can do it. Let's go. God will be with us. But the other 10 said, no way, and they spread bad reports throughout the camps of Israelites. They went around to the Israelites like, Look, this is bad news. If Moses leads us here, we're going to die. Right? So they spread, spread the you know, whispers through the camp. And now the people really snap. Next chapter, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. 
All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us up to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In other words, we're going to get rid of Moses. Look at the flip from from multiple times saying they did everything Moses said. They trusted him as God's man, as their leader. The flip over to, we need a new guy. This is bad news. Now, Caleb's spoken up. The other 10 have spoken up. Joshua has not spoken up yet. He's the 12th of the 12 spies. And there's a choice here for Joshua. Last week, we saw he had a choice. One of them was stay with the people. The other one was stay with Moses. The other one was stay with God. Two focused on people, one focused on God. Here, I think it's similar. He has three choices. The first is, go with the crowd. Right? If I stick with the crowd, maybe I'll get a Guernsey for the new leader. I'm pretty well qualified having shadowed Moses all this time. Right? The second option, let's just shut up and stay silent here. Let's slip back. If they associate me with Moses, I'm in trouble because they want his head now. And then the third option, speak up. Have faith in God. Trust him. Stick with Caleb. And let's, let's say it is doable. Two options, focused on people. One option, focused on God. And, and rarely do we end up in a place where there's five options focused on God and one option focused on people, right? How many situations have we been in where it's so easy to choose God? No, when, it, when things get tough and God's calling us into something, often there's lots of opportunities to focus on other things and get distracted or get fearful when only one option that says this is what trusting God looks like. But thankfully, Joshua has learnt well. And I think this is such a powerful passage from verse 5. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, just hear the, the, the emotion in this, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Don't you think that's bold? We will devour them. But their protection is gone. But the Lord, and notice every time they're saying the Lord here, they're talking about the God they know now. Yahweh is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And I'd love to read at this point, and the people, they backed down, they remembered God's faithfulness, and they said, thank you for the reminder, brothers, we are sorry, let's do this. Yahweh is with us. But you know, that's probably going to go. The whole assembly talked about stoning them. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting in all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I'll make you into a great nation, Moses, and stronger than they. Remember this happened last week. Look, I'm done with them. Moses, I'm just going to start again with you. And like I said last week, I'm sorry to say, I probably would have said, go for it, God, if I was Moses. But I'm done too. And even though Moses talked God out of it last time, 
know, please God, forgive them. And there's a lot more that's happened now. Is this, surely this is the last straw. Surely it's like, look, I'm sorry, but we can't keep going through this, Moses. We need to start again. But look at what Moses prays, and this is so powerful. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. And what has he declared? Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, the sin of their parents, their third and fourth. In accordance with your great love, it goes on, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Basically what he says is this, God, this is who you said you are. Do you know that God wants every single one of us to have a relationship like that with him? A relationship where God is revealing to us who he really is. And when stuff goes down, we can say to him boldly, God, this is who you said you are. This is who you said you are. And it's not for our sake, although sometimes we need to remind ourselves, but more often than not, God, this is who you said you are for the sake of people who need saving. Like Moses knew they needed saving right now from God's wrath. For the sake of these people, God, this is who you are. You're the forgiving God. You're the slow to anger God. You're the God who has mercy, thousand, punishment, three or four. Please, God, show your mercy. Moses wasn't special because God just automatically made him special. Because God just said, oh, you're just going to be different to all the rest. His relationship with God was so special and intimate because he desperately pursued God. He said, God, I want more of you. God, show me your glory. God, give me your presence. Lord, reveal your face to me. And Moses is teaching Joshua to do the same. Now, we know that Moses wasn't perfect. Unfortunately, you may know the story. What happens here is God said, okay, I'll forgive. I'm not going to send a plague. I'm not going to kill them. But you're not going to enter the promised land. They're not going to enter the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, they were faithful. They will. But the rest of you, 40 years, one for every day they were in the land spying, 40 years in the wilderness. They'd have to wander around. And unfortunately, partway through that, Moses gets tired as well. Moses takes his eye off God and does something he wasn't supposed to. And so God says, now you're not going to enter either, Moses. Joshua and Caleb, the only ones left. And that's what takes us to the passage we read this morning where the reins are finally handed over to Joshua. And where's Joshua in all of this? He's been faithful, right? He's been faithful to God. He said, we can do this. So surely in those 40 years, he's a, he's a significant leader. He, he's, got a, he's got a special ministry. Uh, we see him over and over again doing amazing things. Surely that's what happens, right? No, 40 years and Joshua doesn't appear once. 40 years in obscurity. 40 years just waiting, probably going, was it worth it? <laughs> I was obedient, but I, I, I mean, I'm going to be in my 80s by the time we get to the promised land across the Jordan. But Joshua, like Jesus, was called to a life of obedience, whether it takes a little time or a lifetime to see the fruit of that. Think about Jesus, right? Jesus, 30 years, nobody's seen him. Just obscurity. He's working in his dad's trade. 
And then finally, at the age of 30, his baptism. The Spirit comes. This is the one whom I love. And it's like, yes, the Messiah is here. What's he going to do first? And what does he do first? After all that time waiting, he goes into the desert for 40 days without food and water to do what we couldn't. Trust God. Be patient. Say, okay, God, no matter what happens here, Jesus didn't get three days into the desert and go, God, this is hard. He trusted for 40 days. Joshua was an amazing man who from next week we'll see in the book of Joshua, trusted God. He was bold and fearless. He was taking on giants, you know, all sorts of stuff. But let's not forget that this guy didn't just show up out of nowhere. He was formed by years, decades of learning from others, mistakes, opportunities to have faith when it was risky, obscurity, waiting, waiting, waiting in obedience for something that was just a promise from God. Maybe you don't feel like a Moses. Maybe you don't feel like a Joshua. I certainly don't feel like either of them, the spiritual giants. But all I know is I don't want to be an Israelite who dies in a spiritual desert because I wasn't willing to trust God and take a risk. I don't know whether obedience to God will mean the fruit doesn't pay off until the generation after me and I'll never see it or whether it'll come tomorrow. But either way, I want to be obedient. I want to be in that tent meeting with God. I want to speak up believing God can do it, not like the others. Not getting in the way when God moves. Because, friends, He is Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And while He zealously seeks to eliminate sin, passing from generation to generation, punishing to bring justice, he does this to three or four generations, yet shows mercy and love to thousands. And that is the God we serve. Father, I just thank you for this little glimpse of who you are this morning. Sometimes we get distracted by what we read or what we hear or what we see others doing or saying. But Father, this is who you have revealed yourself to be. And I pray, Father, you would give us such a deep trust in who you really are. That when you call us to step out in faith, when you call us to something challenging or risky, we would not uh, fall back and say, no, 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 this is too much or, or too scary. But Father, you, you would give us the faith, not because we have abundant faith, but because you are a trustworthy God. Lord, help us to be people who are obedient to you, no matter whether that means we'll reap the benefits or not. May we have a generational perspective that obedience to you now will pay off for generations to come in Jesus' name. All God's people said...